coming up on Venture Voice. I'd done some traveling. I had really had some really interesting jobs. And I, you know, I was really soaking up a lot of the the culture around the food that I was learning about. I think I started having that sort of urge to write because I felt like I had stories to tell. In the way that I tend to do things, I just decided like, okay, I'm going to try it. Welcome to Venture Voice. This is your host, Greg Gallant. I'm so excited to have Amanda Hesser of Food52. Amanda is an old friend. We met actually before she started Food52, so it's been a blast for me to watch her grow it. She sold a majority stake in Food52 in 2019 for $83 million. Super impressive for any media company. And as you'll hear, she had a really expansive vision for not just being a publication, but for making Food52 into both an online content site and an online retailing site ahead of the trend that everybody's trying to do now with media. What made this conversation a lot of fun to me was just learning about how many lives Amanda's had. She's been a chef, a baker. She's worked at the New York Times as a food writer, which is really interesting to me since my business, Muckrack, is all about journalism and helping companies find the right journalists to pitch, monitor the news, build reports. Amanda even appeared as herself in the excellent Nora Ephron movie, Julie and Julia, which if you haven't watched it, it's worth taking a viewing. I find Amanda's story even more inspirational because as she points out, she had to be the only woman in the room, both when she was working in a bakery and sadly, even in the New York startup scene and succeeded, found a way to make it work. And I think has now been a a role model for a whole new generation of media entrepreneurs. Please enjoy the show. Amanda, welcome to Venture Voice. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Let's start with uh, what were your interests in college? Uh, There's a lot to get to in your career, but what did you study back in college? I studied uh, economics and finance, you know, for no great reason other than I thought I would have a career in business. And it felt like a a sort of (laughs) practical means to an end. But I found myself actually during college not that interested in in studying that and much more interested in just trying new things mostly. And like, for me, college was kind of like a big adventure because I grew up in a small town and I went to college right outside of Boston. So getting exposed to a city was very exciting. And I spent two semesters in London. And that was actually a really sort of transformative time for me because I got to travel around Europe. And, and that was when I started realizing that I was really interested in food you know, what it meant to a culture. And, you know, in Europe, you're just so like very quickly exposed as you go from like town to town or region to region into the like the sort of differences and the very strong differences between the foods and the food traditions. And I just became really fascinated by this. And I think it underlined for me something that I didn't appreciate growing up, which was that my family was really, you know, loves food, loves cooking. It was a really important part of our family life. And that I actually grew up with great food and and an appreciation for it, but I didn't really see that as a, you know, I, I guess it was something that was so normal to me that I didn't think, oh, this is something that I could pursue as a, you know, like as a passion and profession. And I think that's when when I was in college and and traveling around Europe, I certainly didn't have a clear idea of like what I could do with it, but I just thought, well, this is like I'm way more 
captivated by this than I am by what I'm studying in school or any other interest of mine. And let me see where I can take this. And so I just started, I realized I, that I understood what good food was, but I actually didn't know that much about cooking myself. My mom did most of the cooking in our, in our family and my grandmother, like people cooked, but they kind of did the cooking. I didn't actually participate that much as a kid. And so I realized like one of the best ways I could get started was by just diving in and working in restaurants and bakeries and sort of just immersing myself in this world that seemed new and exciting to me. So you did kind of the flip. Like I feel like most students, they study something fun at the beginning of college and then they realize, oh, now how do I get practical and get a real job? And you studied the practical thing in college and then you decided at the end, like, let me go down this path. I mean, of course, food's a career, but it uh, sounds a lot more lot more challenging of career, I imagine, than going into to business and working at a corporation. Is that how you felt about it? Or, or did it, did it feel, uh, feel like a, a sure bet? Oh, it didn't feel like a sure bet. Nothing did, I, I don't think, for me. But I just felt, I was just taken by how I suddenly felt really interested in something. And I sort of follow my gut generally. And, um, and it was telling me to just pursue this. And to just kind of immerse myself, learn as much as I could. I think I just had an internal trust that I would eventually figure out like where I wanted to land with it. And it took me <laughs> to places that I didn't expect. I can tell you that when I was in college, the last thing I would have expected to become was a writer. So tell me first, like you graduate, like how do you get started in food? Well, so while I was in college, I, I did start. So I, I, I wrote a letter to my favorite chef at my favorite restaurant. And asked if I could come and you know work for free, and uh, <laughs> and she was like, sure. And I you know I did the same with a bakery, and I so I baked bread. Um, this was like I mean, of course we have tons of great bread bakeries now, but in the ninety early nineties, it was really like the idea of these kind of European style breads was very much a new and exciting notion that uh, you know was was that Americans weren't familiar with, and there were very few you know good bread bakeries. So um, I got really into that. And I worked at this restaurant. And I also took a food history course at Radcliffe, because they had this sort of night, you know, extension program. It was actually there that I got really, I first got exposed to food writers, and actually, you know, academics, uh, people who studied, you know, food history. And it was a great class. And not only was the course itself really interesting and and eye-opening, but it was my classmates, you know, my, I, some of my classmates were, one was Corby Cummer, who was a staff writer at the, at the Atlantic. You know, he was, <laughs> you know, I was just like this, like kind of clueless college kid. And, you know, he was a classmate of mine. And, and so was Cheryl Julian, who was, and still is food editor at the Boston Globe. You know, I think just getting to know them and seeing that, oh, wait, there's, you can have a, a job where you just write about food and you interview people and you do you know, you report on food, you know, again, like I, I just knew kind of nothing. And in some ways that was really helpful because I was just open to everything. And it was actually, um, you know, Cheryl and Corby who encouraged me to, once I graduated to go to Europe and cook there because they felt like it was something that a lot of cooks in American, like, you know, sort of urban American restaurant kitchens were doing. They were going and, you know, working as interns in France and Italy and Spain. And I don't know if it really exists in this way anymore, but you could pick up a job and just, you know, essentially become like a free intern 
at, you know, good restaurants in, in Europe and you can work there for a few months. They put, they would put you, you basically got room and board instead of getting paid. And then, you know, you could move on to the next one and move on to the next one. I know, I know people who did that for a couple of years and that's what I decided I was going to do after college because again, I, I, I have a very sort of practical side. And I think, you know, this was sort of early signs of my kind of entrepreneurial side that I didn't you know quite recognize yet. I decided that I was going to do this, but I needed to fund it. I needed to find a way to fund it. The other thing I was considering too, was going to maybe an American cooking school. Like I realized after, you know, kind of leaping into kitchens and in this bakery that where I worked in, in Cambridge, I needed to learn a lot more. You know, you, you jump into something and you realize like you learn how much you don't know. And so I felt like I needed to either do a bunch of apprenticeships and or go to a cooking school. And so I looked around at American cooking schools and there, you know, there were a number of very good ones, but I just felt uninspired by them. I just felt like I was kind of, go, you know, going into another classroom as opposed to really getting a sense of the culture around food, which I think is what is a, a real interest of, of mine. And I think actually was a, 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 an early sign of my aptitude to maybe be a think and think like a writer does. You know, I looked into these American cooking schools, felt very uninspired. And then I knew that there were a couple of schools in Europe. I kind of cobbled together this idea that like, I well, what if I could go to, you know, La Varenne or Le Cordon Bleu in Europe and then also do these stages, these apprenticeships at a couple of restaurants. So I decided to just like network and reach out, you know, ask anyone, you know, do you know great places in France or Italy or Germany that I could, you know, study bread baking or cooking? And I just started, you know, <laughs> working the phones and also literally writing letters because that's what there was an email. And I spent my spring break actually traveling. I got one of those like year rail passes and I went to Europe and I traveled like to Paris and I went to Italy and I basically showed up at places and was like, you know, I really, I'm the one who wrote you a letter. I really do want to work here. Is it okay if I come? I'm thinking like, you know, sometime next fall. And they agreed. And then I I basically kind of took all these contacts of places that had sort of quasi agreed to let me work for them. And I applied also to a La Varenne cooking school. I took this plan that I had cooked up, <laughs> uh, pun intended, and uh, went to an, a culinary organization that gave scholarships to students to go to American cooking schools. And it was called um, Les Dames d'Escoffier, the women of, of Escoffier. It's a national organization, but this was a, a chapter that was in Boston. They gave scholarships to to people going to cooking school, but only to they'd only given them to American cooking schools. So I presented them with this plan to like go to cooking school, but also have all these other you know jobs. In, and actually, I'd, I had worked out jobs in um, Germany, Switzerland, Italy, and France. And I made a plan for how much like what I what costs I needed covered, which were essentially my my airfare and a little bit of food, you know, again, I was mostly my room and board was covered. And when you work in a restaurant in Europe, you work six days a week. So there's very little time off to. And is it, is it abusive the way, you know, the French chefs have such a um, reputation for shouting at people and being so emotional? I'll get to that. Yeah. So, (laughs) (laughs) um, so they said yes, like to my amazement, they actually gave me the money to do this kind of wild adventure. 
So in August, after I graduated, off I went and I started in Germany and I worked at a bakery there. Yes, it was run by a a <laughs> a guy who really liked to shout a lot. And I mean, it was a very old school. I mean, the bakery itself was was really nice. I mean, like the breads that they made were really nice. And I think probably German breads are underappreciated or just not not well known outside of Germany. But, you know, it was very traditional in that like women worked in the front, they sold the 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 baked goods. And in the back, the bakers were all men. So it was basically me and about 30 men. I lived above the bakery because the owner of the bakery owned the building. And so he had a, a small apartment on the top floor where he actually kept all of his, he was a big hunter, a big game hunter in Africa. And so it was a room that was filled with like, uh, like literally a, a bear rug with a bear head and all sorts of like taxidermy. Taxidermy. Thank you. That's the word I'm looking for. So I, I was living in this room that was just filled with these like scary looking animals and antlers. And, <laughs> um, and then I would, you know, I would go to bed early because we started baking around four in the morning. And my wake up call was the rumble of the oven getting re like heating. And so then, yeah, I would go downstairs and I would bake, you know, through the morning hours and I mean, he was known to come through and I, there, there was an incident that he did literally hit someone over the head with a baguette. You know, it was sort of ridiculous. I, there just, it was a different time. I, I mean, I hope it wasn't a stale baguette. Uh, who knows? It just was, the whole thing was unpleasant, but I mean, it was sort of, so it was early nineties. Kitchens were definitely less civilized than they are now in terms of like tempers and how people treat each other. And, and they're still not great, you know, but there was it was definitely a different time. And so, yes, I, I was very much exposed to that in my experiences in Europe. Uh, so how, how did you go from that that world of living living among all the taxidermy and baking yourself to becoming a writer and ending up at the New York Times? You know, so then I, I worked at, again, I went, went from Germany. I would, worked in a bakery in Switzerland. I worked at a bakery, a bread bakery in Rome and then in Paris. And then I worked in a restaurant outside of Milan. And then I finally did go to cooking school uh, or, you know, at, at La Varenne. And it was a little bit of an untraditional cooking school experience in that the school was in an old chateau and the owner of the school wrote cookbooks and I was her assistant. So I basically got my culinary education by cooking for her. And you became her assistant. So you joined the school, but was that to help pay for it or does everyone at the school work? Yeah, it was basically it was like my kind of work study program was I I cooked for her and her family. I helped her with her cookbooks, and then I took the exams at the sort of traditional cooking school was doing. That was the first time that I got exposed to someone who wrote cookbooks and what that world looked like and what that process was like. And I really you know enjoyed it. And I think that at that point, because I'd been you know I'd, I'd done some traveling, I had really you know had some really interesting jobs. And I, you know, I was really soaking up a lot of the the culture around the food that I was learning about. I think I started having that sort of urge to write because I felt like I had stories to tell, but I had never written really anything other than papers and letters, you know, writing letters to my friends and family when I was in Europe. In the way that I tend to do things, I just decided like, okay, I'm going to try it. So I had an idea for a book, which was to write about the gardener who lived on the property of this cooking school who grew many of the vegetables that we used and who was kind of a difficult fellow 
who in my view was so fascinating because he, he was an older man and he lived in a very different way than like most French people did at that point. It felt to me like he was this kind of relic of the past and this way of living um, that was dying out in France. And just like the way he planted his seeds according to the phases of the moon. And, you know, when he would finish planting a row, he would say this kind of send off to the, 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 the row of seeds to like kind of wish them well. He rolled his own cigarettes. You know, when you went into his house, it was just like there was, it wasn't a dirt floor, but it was just like, there was very little, you know, break from what was inside and what was outside. It was just a, he just felt very close to the earth in a way that I had never seen anyone living. And I felt like there was something there to, to write about. And also because I was cooking the vegetables he was growing and I was learning about them at the same time and really seeing how the seasons and the food changes with the seasons. And for the first time, and I felt like there was something there was a way to weave this together. And so that did become my first book and it was called The Cook and the Gardener. And it was really about seasonal cooking and the story of, of this man, whose name is Monsieur Melbert, and this way of life that I felt like was dying out in France, yet something worth um, preserving. I guess first, like, how do you go about pitching the book? Like once you're, you're cooking for a family in Europe, uh, was it an American publisher, European publisher? Like, where, do you, where do you start for someone who's never published before? Sure. So I, I just assumed I was going to be published by an American publisher because I really felt like the story was most interesting to Americans. I sort of hesitate to, to tell this because it makes me feel ancient, but you know, there's a culinary organization called the International Association of Culinary Professionals, also known as IACP. You know, it's a well-known industry organization in the U.S. and it's for everybody from like chefs to writers. And they put out at the time, they used to put out a catalog, like an annual directory so I had the physical, like, you know, 100-page directory because my my boss had it in France and I, I looked up agents. So, I mean, that's literally where I started. I just like looked up all the names of the agents, uh, pitched to all of them. And one of them replied. When you say you wrote a pitch, like you put it, oh, you faxed it to them? I think I like physically mailed the pitches, but I had my fax number on it. Because it was to me, the fax machine was like the connection to America and connection to home. And so when that fax machine would start like buzzing and beeping and doing its thing, I it was like this magical sound to me because I was like, ooh, you know, it was like it was like when you first when the first like you've got mail. Now of course that's dreaded to everyone. And so this one agent replied, a wonderful agent um, named Joe Coover in Massachusetts, and she said, yeah, I'd like to work with you and. And then she put together a list of American publishers and, you know, in just a, like a month or two, like had a book deal with uh, Norton. It's W.W. Norton, which is uh, based in New York. You may know the Norton Anthology. You know, so it's a really fantastic, really storied publisher. And so I like sort of ended up in this really great, in great hands and with a great editor who, you know, appreciated that it was my first book and I didn't really know what I was doing and, um, you know, helped really make it a great book. That book actually didn't come out until after I was hired at the New York Times and was a reporter there. Fast forward, I, you know, I stayed in Europe and wrote and did the research and and started writing my book. And then I moved home to my <laughs> my childhood home in Pennsylvania with my mother. She was, of course, not super pleased to have me moving back in, understandably. And I spent a year uh, writing the book. You know, at that point, it was a little bit of a confusing moment for me because I was like, I guess I'm a writer now. And how'd I end up here? And now I've I, I've got to figure out how to make it as a writer. 
all throughout this sort of period of working on the book, I was pitching stories and doing freelance to be totally candid. I wasn't, I was not a great freelancer because it was, you know, it was really hard then you did have to like write pitches. I would send pitches by letter and, you know, hope to hear back. And you mostly didn't, or then you'd follow up with a phone call and, you know, it was like, you know, leaving voicemails and no, no, it, it, you just, it felt like this kind of like black hole that you didn't know if you were ever going to get jobs. I grew up in, again, a small town in Pennsylvania, but we lived sort of in the woods. And I thought, well, I'm not going to really make it as a freelance writer if I'm just in the woods here. You're like Thoreau going into the woods to write your uh, write your book. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, well, I, you know, I have to say, I, it, it was really nice because it was so quiet and there was nothing to do. So that's all, I really cranked it out. I had a boyfriend at the time who lived in Los Angeles. So I thought, well, being living in a city would probably be helpful. And so I decided to move there. And then four days before I moved, I got a phone call from the New York Times out of the blue. And it was an editor who left a message saying, like, we'd love to talk to you. Do you know how he heard about you, by the way? Essentially, it was through that class that I took in Rad- at Radcliffe. Somebody who is kind of like, you know, friends with that food writer group that I mentioned. Her name is Nancy Jenkins, and she's a food writer. And um, I had met her, and she had actually helped me a lot when I was in Europe and she, she used to work at the New York times. And so they, I guess they had reached out to her to say like, Hey, is there anyone you would recommend for this role? And she recommended me, which was incredible. And, but the, uh, at the time, you know, I was, I was already moving to LA in my mind. And I just, and I just thought this is such a long shot. It's never going to happen. But, and I let the editor know that I was moving and he said, well, can you meet me, you know, in New York before you leave? So the day before I moved to Los Angeles, I met him at Grand Central Station. We had a lunch there. You know, I was incredibly nervous. I didn't think it necessarily went that well. So I moved. We kept talking. And then a month later, they said, well, we'd love for you to come back for a day of interviews. So they flew me back for a day. It was a very long day of interviews. And then I went back to LA and again, didn't assumed I wouldn't get the job. And then they, they called me again and said, you know, we, the executive editor of the paper would like to meet you. And at that point, I thought, well, he's not going to waste his time hiring me. And I also, <laughs> I was like, okay, so I was broke. So I, I just, um, I took that flight back to New York that they were covering as my, that was my move home. So I, I basically packed up before I left in hopes that I would get this job and, you know, asked my boyfriend to, at the time to like send the boxes back if I got hired. And that's what happened. Then a month later, I was living in New York City, and I was really like a fish out of water. Total transformation, and I'm sure uh, New York City, even compared to LA, is a total different ball game. Yeah, and I knew no one. I actually know I had one friend in, in New York. Yeah. What was it like starting at the Times? Did you was it a welcoming place? Was it? Um, I know it's also a very competitive place. How did it strike you? Well, the competitive piece, I think, kind of seeped in. It's sort of both a great part and tough part of the culture at the Times. But, you know, they were very welcoming. I mean, it was it was funny because I didn't realize this at the time. But, you know, I think my hiring was part of an effort like across the organization to hire some younger people and really start sort of developing younger talent. And so we were a little bit of like this group that was like a little bit in the fishbowl where, you know, a lot of people at the times people don't tend to like if they get hired there, they don't leave. Or at least at the time they they didn't. And in fact, I remember in one of my first weeks there, I was in the elevator with two men, and they were talking to each other. And one said, "Oh, you know, how long you been here?" And the other one said, "Only twenty years." 
And I, <laughs> I was floored, you know, you know, it was a very kind of ingrained culture that it took a while for me to really understand. It's extremely competitive and, and political. And I certainly didn't mind the competition, but the political piece, it's not something that I'm very good at, nor accustomed to. I think what happened was that I found over time that a like, that's just not my kind of my bag. But also, I am entrepreneurial. And I felt actually, over time, kind of frustrated working in at a and I don't think it's this is unique. It doesn't matter if it was the Times or someplace else. I'm sure I would have felt this anywhere. But just a little like stymied. There were things I wanted to do and experiment with. And you just it's really hard to do that when it's a big institution. And it's a, like, any new changes like takes a lot of a lot of consensus and a lot of kind of work behind the scenes. And I'm sort of a doer. I just want to like, I mean, as you've heard, like I sort of tend to just dive into things. I actually feel like I had really good, nice bosses who like recognized that I wanted to be two things and they tried to find opportunities for me to do that. So like I, when I was working at the newspaper, I worked, I wrote a column in the magazine called Food Diary. And it was very different for the times because it will sound kind of cliched at this point, but it was really unusual. It was like, it was a very personal essay-based column about my life in the intersection of my life and food. And I wrote a lot about my now husband and sort of our courtship. It was really controversial at the time. I mean, it was basically like a blog, you know, it was a blog, but delivered in the format of, uh, of the magazine. And because it was personal and because it was very kind of bloggy, a lot of people didn't like it. And I did turn that into a book called uh, Cooking for Mr. Latte. And, you know, it had its fans, but you know, again, it was like, oh, I was yearning to try things that I, I couldn't, you know, that I felt like just wanted to experiment with. Luckily, I was able to do that. I also, I, you know, I redesigned the food pages in the magazine and also helped them launch one of the team magazines. So I got to do new things and that was great. But at a certain point, because I had such a specialty food and I wasn't going to suddenly like, you know, be a sports reporter or a Metro reporter there were kind of limits to how much I could more I could really play around with. I think I, you know, it took me a while to kind of recognize that, but it is hard to leave a place like the New York times because it is so well-respected and you are surrounded by really smart people and interesting people. And as a writer, it's hard to find a steady job that, you know, where you have benefits and all of that. And so it was a tough thing to kind of let go of, you know, ultimately. And then I, I, I think I met you shortly, like as I was, really starting to like think about leaving the times and I had an idea for a business and I was going to ask to go half time to pursue it because the times that's another great thing is that they're pretty flexible about like supporting people's you know kind of other other interests and my husband said he was like you can do that he's like but he's like I just think you should cut the cord because you'll never you won't be able to give either your full attention or the attention it deserves and like and it's going to be tough on you and probably tough on every piece of it. So they were offering buyouts and I, I took one, which felt kind of weird, honestly. It was kind of a scary moment, but it was also exciting because I think that I, that was the moment that I kind of got back to who I really am, I think. And also who I, how I started my career, which was um, really following my instincts and, and going after things that interested me as opposed to conforming to, I think, kind of cultural notions of like, what is a respectable career? And I imagine that must have been kind of a bit of a crisis of identity because to say, hey, I'm a writer at the New York Times at a party and living in New York is uh, we both do. The first question is, what do you do? Writer at the New York Times, that's easy. But 
saying that you were in startups and back in um I looked it up. I think we met in 2008. And I remember around then, if you told someone you were in startups in New York, they gave you like a really funny look, like kind of what are you doing with your life versus now where, where it's more accepted and common? Yeah, there were a lot of sort of different identity related, I would say, challenges. In some ways, letting go of the times. I mean, I think it was a several multi-year process of me thinking about it. So I was ready by the time I did it. I think what I wasn't prepared for was, you know, I was entering, you know, the startup world and it went, you know, as to your point, yes, it was (laughs) what was the startup world then. And I mean, it was actually kind of, now I look back at it as really nice and a small community of people who I think were really like helpful to each other. But the thing that I wasn't prepared for was that like, you know, I came from the New York Times, which I never thought about gender at the times. There were lots of women running depart, like big departments you know, it was a real mix of men and women. And I never, it never really felt to me like, like I was being treated differently because of my gender. And I have to say that like, it, that was a shock and sort of in the startup world, when it came to like raising money and just trying to kind of get a foothold, I did feel like not <laughs> like part of the like regular mix of people. And I felt like a little bit of an outsider. Also, I was, you know, 36 at that point. I was not, you know, the 25 year old person who was like, you know, fresh out of college with an idea that a VC would be like, okay, you know, I got to hear what the, what the youth are thinking about. It was different. Yeah. I remember back then, I mean, it's not good now, but I remember back then, I think you were one of the only female entrepreneurs I knew of in New York that was out there doing stuff. You know, I knew just about everybody back then. I think you must've been the first for a lot of the people who backed you. Yeah. I I, I don't know um, if that, you know, maybe I, I was, I was sort of confronted with a like, like I didn't have you know super bad experiences, but there was definitely a just like I'm different and I gotta find a way to figure it, you know, fit in here. And you know, obviously I did figure it out and that's great. But it was just like that was a little bit that was a hurdle that I didn't expect because it was something that I didn't I hadn't experienced before. I tried to this first company and I can now go back and call it my startup grad school year because I like <laughs> I, I spent a lot of my own money just trying to get this idea off the ground. I had two co-founders who were wonderful and we worked on this idea and created like a proof of concept for something that was much more about like kind of tracking your life online. Cause I, I mean, I do think we were, we were right in terms of like our instincts around what was needed. And I don't think it's been solved well yet. It's a big problem to solve, which is that you can look at call it a big problem, but I actually thought it was a big opportunity. And I think this came from right, my writing, which is that I found that it was so interesting at that point in time that how much of our lives were being recorded online in such so much more detail and nuance than you could ever like keep in a journal or and also it was because the way people were learning to kind of like use data like there was a way to sort of really kind of pull out kind of insights about your life that you might not have been able to do well, you weren't able to do really previously without without technology. And I felt like there was a need for a way to kind of like track your online life. There's parts and pieces of it, you know, the threads of it that you wanted to, like whether it was like the music you were listening to or the, you know, photos you were taking, the news you were reading. The first um, business idea was around trying to like kind of pull those threads of your digital life together in a way that you could have preserved for yourself and share with others. And, you know, it was too big of an idea for me and our, I think also our, my co-founders to tackle. We spent a year basically trying to build a proof of concept. We built a Twitter app back when there were Twitter apps 
called Plot, and it was a way of kind of, of tracking things quantitatively and qualitatively on Twitter, using Twitter, I should say. And, you know, at a certain point, you know, one of the co-founders had to move to California and we were just like, okay, like there's not a business here. Tell me about that switch. Cause I know there's like, I've been through it so many times where you start at the beginning and it's like, we're going to make this work, hell or high water. And what was like, do you remember like that moment where you're like, you know, the day where you're like, oh, it's time to switch into close it down mode. I, think I blocked that day out of my brain, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't, I, you know, I kind of don't know if it was specifically a day actually though. Like, I think I sort of like, I could see the writing on the wall. It was a tough year because it was, yeah, it was disappointing and a little disorienting. At the same time, though, I was very aware that I had like, (laughs) even though I was just saying like, I felt like an outsider, I also feel like I had found my people. Like I actually founders roundtable, which I think is how we met. That's right. Yeah, I looked it up. I actually saw your demo then and we connected soon after. That's right. And um, Founders Roundtable actually was like really a big turning point for me because I I felt like, oh, these are people who like they're very different from me. Their businesses that they're and ideas are like wildly different from mine. But I felt like I shared something like this drive to like create new things and to do new things and to take risks. And and so I think that like that is what kind of kept me going, which was like, okay, yes, I've, I've left this amazing job. I've had a failure, but I I now know that like there's this part of me and I've spent a year like investing time and money into like learning more and immersing myself. I like during that year, like I met, I met Fred Wilson, which was amazing. I met, got introduced to Betaworks and all the people there and all of these kind of like amazing people who were really the ones who built, uh, who were establishing the building blocks of the, of the startup community in, in New York city. And, um, but I had done it without like baggage, thankfully, like I hadn't raised money. So I didn't lose money for anyone. <laughs> so I had, I had lost my own money, but I hadn't lost anyone else's. And that was actually kind of, I realized now was kind of helpful because it made my next step a little bit, certainly not easier, but like less daunting to me. You know, and at the time I was also writing a book and I was actually like on quite an intense deadline for a book for the New York Times called The Essential New York Times Cookbook, which didn't come out then for another couple of years, but it was a very long multi-years, like six-year project. So I also had that going. So it wasn't like, you know, the year that I was spending on my first startup, I was also finishing a book and I was still writing a column for the New York Times. And so I had, I had things going on that were kind of keeping me afloat, not only financially, but like psychologically, even though I was, it certainly was hard. And then I just threw my work on that book and I had hired someone to help me, you know, do the research and the recipe testing. And that was Meryl Stubbs, who became my co-founder. For food 52 and you know in just sort of talking about kind of what was going on in the food world you know had an insight about an opportunity and see changes that were happening in the food world and food media that were not being responded to we felt by companies and so you know another idea for a business kind of bubbled up and i think i probably went at this one with more confidence because i had domain expertise you know i, I had experience in this world Whereas I didn't in my, with my previous idea. And I think that was one of the things that I learned was that like, you know, there are certainly great founders who start companies about things that they don't know that much about, but they're great learners and they, they're really good at the, at sort of kind of surrounding themselves with the right people. And, and then there are founders who like really thrive off of like domain expertise. And I think that is, that was really helpful to me at that time. So when you had this idea, what what was your uh, thought about how to how to build it? Like I know you you did raise an angel round. How did you go about thinking like 
how much are we going to bootstrap? How are we going to fund it? At what point do we go out there and raise money? Well, I, I think that was, again, like, that's why I do feel like that first year was so helpful, even though it was hard. The other takeaway from that year was I'm more of a bootstrapper. And the reason for that is I'm not good at, nor do I feel comfortable or like selling something before I would know what I'm selling. And there's sort of two styles of founders. I'm that style. And um, I felt like we needed to get a proof of concept going and know what we were raising money for before doing so. And so we still needed money. Again, back to my like roots of how I got to go to Europe, we figured out a different way, which was we essentially shaped our proof of concept around a book idea. And I knew how to sell a book because I'd sold like four or five by then. So we took that book concept, which would enable our proof of concept online <laughs> and took it to publishers. And there was one at HarperCollins who was starting this new, actually new publishing model called Harper Studio. And he was selling multiple books at a time with a limit, like a, a capped advance. When you sell a book, you get an advance. The advance is like the money that the publisher basically gives you up front against the sales of the book. That is helps you fund your research and your, you know, <laughs> your life while you write, write it. it. Tends to be like you get half up front and then like a couple of installments, you know, on delivery and publishing, et cetera. I think I talked for like one minute about like what the idea was. And he said, Great, how many books? <laughs> and and I, I was sort of so stunned um, because, I, you know, we didn't expect him to just like take it right away. And so we said two. And then we said, you know, what we really need is cash. Is it possible to get the advance on both books, even though the second book wouldn't be published for a couple of years? He said, yes. So we got $100,000 up front. And so we didn't pay ourselves. We used that money to hire a design and like kind of branding firm who helped us design the original website, get it built, and then hire a part-time engineer who would kind of keep it running as we, um, after our contract with the design firm ended. And so we lived on that $100,000 for 18 months, like the company lived on it, you know, and that was, I think, through our first part-time hire and, and then we needed money. And, but at that point we had a proof of concept that was launched. There was traction. We were sort of seeing where the opportunities and limitations were. And again, like we had something that we felt more confident about going out and selling. I will say it was really hard to to raise that seed round. I mean, everyone, you know, except for a, this magical few that I I don't know, <laughs> I don't know who they are, but I hear about them occasionally. Who you know have no problems raising money. It was a struggle. It was like we had you know a, a lot of people interested and kind of like no one willing to write the first check. And then you know. There was certainly a moment in there where I thought, I don't know if this is going to happen or not. Are we going to have to like unravel this? And then shortly after that moment, things just started coming together. And I think it wasn't a great time to raise money. It was 2009. So it was, or sorry, that's not right. 2010. So it wasn't actually a bad time, but it was like, you know, we started the company basically during the recession. People were just starting to get comfortable with investing. Food, though, was not at all popular. And media was like way unpopular at the moment at that time. And so, you know, <laughs> no one wanted to talk to us. It was like food, who cares? Media, you know, you're in a downward spiral. You know, just the shifting winds of venture capital are tough to keep up with. We just as a company, like never seem to be in sync with the shift, the wind shifts. Like we're always in the opposite side. We're like in the area where nobody cares about, like, and similarly, like when we were raising money for 
the commerce platform that we wanted to build. Like no one, it was like the post fab moment. (laughs) Fab had just crashed and burned and everyone was over commerce all of a sudden. And we were like, no, but really our idea is better. You know, so we did finally close our first round, which was $750,000 in October of 2010. You know, that right now, like, I think everyone would would like kind of laugh at that as a seed round, but that was, a, you know, it was a perfectly fine, acceptable seed round at that time. And then we, you know, we raised a couple of rounds since then. In 2019, we took on a majority investment from a firm called the Chernin Group. And that's actually, it's been amazing. We'd had a lot of investors over time and many great investors, but the Turning Group has been just really terrific to work for. And because the very focus, they are our primary investor and we all have skin in the game. Cool. And I, I, I want to back up a bit in a moment to hear more about how the business got built. But with that decision to take a majority investor, so that means essentially, I imagine that they're buying you out for... Uh, a lot of your shares, you kind of get like a partial exit and then you, you work together to keep on building it? I think they can work in different ways. But for us, you know, it was it bought out all of our existing investors, vested employees, which was really nice. And recently, you know, kind of, I think the term is like cleaned up the cap table. Yeah, it just like kind of simplified things in a, in a way that was, we were about 10, almost 10 years old at that point. And that really you know, it actually, I think makes a big difference at that point. It's sort of, it's helpful to have, have things kind of simplified and cleaned up and focused. And what has been great is that, you know, TCG has like they, the, a lot of people who work there have like operated companies. They, you know, they think like founders and entrepreneurs and they, and a lot of their businesses in their portfolio you know, share a DNA that's similar to ours, even though they're like on the surface wildly, you know, different, you know, different seeming businesses, but which is like, you know, these really engaged, passionate audiences around like a a specific topic area. There's a strong like community, organic growth, and then a really diversified revenue stream, which is what our business is. And how did it change uh, your life and kind of, you know, the public perception going from a startup with a few, you know, with a few million in venture to like this, this really big transaction of $80 million? I don't know. Like, I I don't, I, I don't know what the public perception has, you know, how it has changed. I mean, I think like, you know, certainly in the business world, there's this kind of like, there's a sort of sense that you've been validated by the sort of journalists who write about these kinds of things that like, your business is on the map and it, or on this new map. Um, and that's, you know, interesting. <laughs> I, I don't know how, I think I, I'm just really focused on like what it means for our, our team and like where we're going with the business. So I haven't thought that much about kind of what the public perception is. And I think just also generally, like, <laughs> like I said, like we've never been like on the side of like, you know, in the past, like where VCs were like, what they thought was like interesting and hot at the moment. We were always on the other end. Like we've never been the cool kids and that's fine. And I think that's sort of similar in the food world. Like, you know, kind of like Bon Appetit was the cool kids and we, we focusing on what we're building, you know, like, and I think that, you know, we, (laughs) yeah. So I I guess I, I don't care that much. Do you know what I mean? Like I don't focus that much on, of my energy on what others perception is. I'm really focused on like, what does this mean for us and what can we, and what we're building. How large is the company now from a headcount perspective? So we're at 100 and we'll do a bit of hiring this year. As you know, like 
there's sort of different phases of like, you know, you know, sort of zero to 12, then you get to, when you get to 25, there's like sort of a different vibe and 50 and, you know, things get sort of new complexities show up. So I think that, that, you know, we'll probably be going through a lot of transformation internally as we figure out like how, how to operate when we, when we have 150 people as opposed to hundred. Yeah. I know the feeling we're, we have a very similar size right now. And it's something I always am thinking about, like, how, how did you go through that transformation yourself of being at the beginning? I mean, it sounds like, you know, great entrepreneur where you knew how to do 50 jobs yourself to now where at a hundred it's a leadership team and people a layer or two below you, like just such a different world of being a CEO. How, how's that transition been for you? I think it's an ongoing and it's something I do, uh, I think a lot about and work really hard on um, because I think if you don't work on it, that can be really problematic. And uh, yeah, so I feel like I'm constantly learning. I feel like actually TCG has been really helpful on this front. I talk to a lot of other founders. I, I seek advice because as we've grown and we've made h- different kinds of hires, that's really where I feel like it's been really like interesting and eye-opening and like helpful is like when you hire someone who understands like what kind of processes you need to have in place when you have a hundred people and can help sort of simplify making that happen. I think that, you know, the biggest change is kind of trying to, you know, figure out where to draw the lines of like, I need to learn this or I don't need to learn this, or I need to learn this and spend time on this and master it and like change the way I'm doing things. And there's plenty of areas where that is the case. And then there are other areas where I I think you have to decide, like, I actually don't need to be the expert on this. I need to hire the great expert on this and trust them and just make it clear that, like, that's <laughs> that's their thing. I'm not going to spend time on that. <laughs> uh, you know, I think it's just being sort of disciplined about, like, what what you're doing and, I, and how you're spending your time. And I think that that's actually probably going to be an ongoing challenge for me. I think the biggest lesson that I have learned is just how important communication and repetition of communication is as we grow. What was like a, an example of an area where where you felt like you had to learn something and then it turned out hiring somebody was the right solution and you actually didn't need to learn it? There are a lot, like legal docs, you know, and processes around legal. Like I felt like I needed to like learn kind of how everything worked. And I wasn't, I felt like I wasn't doing a good job of that. And then I realized like there are people who, you know, this is this is what they spend their career, like learning how to to get good at. And I'm not going to probably be able to pick it up fast enough. And I can learn enough that I'm conversant and also informed enough. And I think there are certain pieces of like financial planning that I feel similarly about, especially as our business becomes complex, more complex. And, and I, we have diversified revenue streams where like the financials are like very, and sort of strategies around it are very different. Like, I think I want to be knowledgeable, but I don't need to be the expert. Just to rewind a a little bit, you started the site as a content site. Was it always the vision to move into commerce or did that, uh, did that come later? Yeah, no, it was. It's, it's funny because somebody, I can't remember it was like someone in the, somebody in the last year was like, you know, you added that much later. And I knew that wasn't the case, but I like needed to prove it to myself. And so I went back because I used to do screenshots of our site because I wanted to preserve it for my own memory. And, and I, you know, I knew that we had, we had launched a shop shortly after. So we launched in September of 2009. And in December of 2009, we launched our shop and it was not transactional. So it was a a shop that was looked like an e-commerce shop. It was like, you know, had categories of products and 
images of the products and we, we could look, click through and read more about that product. But then if you wanted to buy it, we would send you off to a site to buy it, which lots of lots of companies do that and they collect affiliate commissions on now. But even in 2009, like there were two reasons we didn't do that. One was that affiliate commission programs were like just nascent. Not many companies were using them. It just it just felt like tedious and probably not would limit the number the kinds of products that we featured. But also we just wanted to build trust with people. We wanted to like put that stake in the ground. Like we are not going to be just about content. We want you to get used to seeing products and trust us for our, our curation. I think that worked out well. So we did that for a couple of years. And then we tested out commerce with a third-party platform to see if, if people trusted us enough or would want to you know, see us as a, a source for buying things. And they totally did, which was like a kind of you know what we were hoping for, obviously, but it was a much stronger signal than we even expected. And so then that's when we raised, actually, it was, I think, our Series A to build a commerce platform. We do have an unusual commerce business in that it's drop ship. We have vendor agreements. Like we're not, we're not an affiliate commerce company. Like a lot of sort of media companies are doing a lot of featuring of products and then they get affiliate commissions. We, we have direct relationships with our vendors, establish all the, the sort of business terms. And then, but we also do like a lot of exclusive products with them. And we are the, merchant of record, meaning like that when you you transact on our site, we are the ones who handle all customer care. We just send basically a shipping label and order to the vendor. They do the packing and they ship it off. But now we also have our own product line and we do actually have a warehouse. And so we're starting to warehouse more, more products, but I don't think like we'll never go entirely owned inventory. It'll probably always be a mix because Dropship just allows us to, a lot more flexibility about around who we work with and and the sort of breadth of our SKU count. Was it daunting to because uh, you're you're kind of doing a much wider breadth than a company that's just a content site where you have to have writers, you have to have a great web staff, and now you have to have a warehouse manager and shipping and customer complaints. Was was there a moment where you felt like, hey, it's we're really getting very broad here or did it just always feel like hey it all fits together i think from like my perspective it's like it all fits together you know this is what we wanted as customers like we want one place that is curating the world of food but giving us everything we need in one place not forcing us to like chase down other pieces of of what we need which was really one of the primary problems we were trying to solve with our company which is you know the consumer experience was really fragmented. It was like you had to shop in one place, go to a totally different place for recipes, different place to read about food. You know, it was just like not consumer focused. And so I think, you know, we, if you just focus on like what people need, it's a very solid reminder of like, we're on the right path. Yes, there are complexities under the hood that they don't need to know about, but that we need to figure out. And I do think the other challenge was, and continues to be, you know, when you hire people, they tend to either come from the world of commerce or they come from the world of media or content and getting them into this this mindset that like these all blend together and it's they really organically can blend together. But you have to be open to it, right? You have to kind of let go of the sort of constraints that you've been taught from previous roles you've had. There's a lot of work we do internally and just like you know, we are all one team. So, you know, if you're one of our copywriters, they're writing, they might be writing the product you know, the details on the product page, they might also be writing like an editorial email or one that mixes both. It's just trying to get people really focused on the, what the consumer is receiving as opposed to like being 
focus on like what what you're specifically doing. I know we're running up on time. This is my final question. I believe you lasted about a decade at the um, at the New York Times before you got the the itch to go on the next adventure, and it's been about a decade at uh, Food Fifty Two now. Like, what keeps you going now? And what uh, after doing the the you know work on the same company for so long, what keeps it exciting for you personally? I am so excited about the future of Food Fifty Two. I feel like like re-energized, and I think you know, working with TCG has been a really pivotal part of that because I think they see the, you know, our bright future and, and that is, is helpful. And I feel like, yes, it was helpful to have like the pressures of like having a lot of investors who had been invested for many years, like having them be paid out in a, in a way that they were really happy with. And that like, it means a lot to me to like, I don't want to, I don't ever want to like lose anyone's money. And so like having that sort of pressure off of my shoulders, I feel like in many ways has like allowed me to really focus a hundred percent just like on the future of the company. And I feel really excited about that. And I feel like it, you know, honestly, 2020 in particular, but even just the past couple of years, I think that the way people have in our culture have really started to fully embrace like the importance of food and the importance of home has been really validating for like our mission. And I feel like there's so much more to do and we are really you know, uniquely positioned in our space because we are the only company that is really serving people in a comprehensive way. And I want to make sure that we really do our best to like reach as many people as we can. So like, I'm, I'm super energized to like, just keep going with this. I, um, it's funny because like a lot of New Yorkers, they, they, they love telling the stories of like all the many apartments they've lived in. I've been in New York since 1997 and I've only lived in two places my first apartment and then the apartment I'm in right now that my husband and I bought right before we got married. And so I'm <laughs> a pretty like stable person. Like I'm a very like, I'm like kind of like once I, there's something that I'm doing that I love. And then, you know, this, like the beauty of a startup is that like nothing is, it's never boring. There's always new stuff that you have to kind of like, you know, react to and evolve. And, and I, I love that challenge. So to me, like, I'm not looking for the next thing I'm looking to like, what's the next thing at food 52 that I can like, we can make better. Anyway, I can't wait to see it. Amanda, thanks so much for uh, your time and for coming on the show. Thank you so much. It's so great to see you. Likewise. That's it for my interview with Amanda. I actually spent a lot more time talking to her about her backstory than I thought I would rather than about her startup. But it's just so interesting to me how people's life experiences before they start their first business or the business that they're focused on can really influence it and just what a diversity of backgrounds can prepare people to be successful in startups. With that, please let me know what you think of this episode. Hit me up on Twitter or Instagram. I'm just at Gregory, signed up early, at Gregory. And please, please help people find this show. Leave a review on iTunes. Uh, Tell your friends about it. Tweet about it. Get more people listening and hearing about these startup stories. Thanks so much. Until next time, I'm Greg Gallant. Keep building your businesses.